We're going back to the 70s once again for another round of classic disaster movies, kicking off the season as a star-studded three-hour spectacle of pyro and stunts. Today we discuss The Towering Inferno. Welcome everyone to The Collector's Cut. I am Peter and joining me as always is David. I used to run the 110 flat. No, you did not. This Never is a did. movie no. podcast, everyone. We work through franchise, work through themes, and this is the start of a new season. This is 70s Disasters Season 2. We did this for the first time almost about exactly a year ago. Exactly a year ago, We yeah. did five episodes. We did five movies, disaster movies from the 70s, and we're back for round two. This time we're doing eight that's right, there's eight more of these coming. One was a, a Patreon vote, and we'll, we'll get into all those. Uh, today mm-hmm. we're doing the Towering Inferno. We're starting off with arguably the most famous of them all. Uh, I say, I of that or Poseidon Adventure, which is what we started season one with. So either yeah. way, yeah, we're starting with a heavy hitter, and we're going to get into it. We'll start spoiler-free as we always do. And just before we get into it, I'll just say, if you enjoy the show, hit the like button. It helps out a lot. More people will find us. And of course, you can support everything over at patreon.com slash TV. You get bonus shows and things like that. I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. But let's get into The Towering Inferno, which I had seen before. It'd been a little while, but I'd okay. seen, it, seen it before. Uh, was this a first-time watch for you? This was definitely a first-time watch. Um... I do think there was certain imagery in this movie that seemed really familiar, but I'm going to chalk that up to Die Hard. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, Tower Inferno, I mean, the title kind of spells it out for you, but the premise, of course, is that it was a skyscraper, and it's a super advanced skyscraper. It's meant to be this, you know, next generation, fancy. I won't quite call it a smart building, because it's obviously, it's the 70s, it's not smart by yeah. what we think of, but... It's got like a got fantasy systems in place. It's got its own security system, electrical Absolutely grid. Absolutely no asbestos. <laughs> there, oh, there's definitely asbestos. There's definitely a lot of that. And of course, this is when they're having their parties celebrating that the building's about to be open. It's this super tower that's meant to be half business, half residential. Uh, mm. The idea being that people can live upstairs and then go to work downstairs and I've seen this concept, funnily enough, I've seen this concept once or twice pop up in science fiction, and I wouldn't call this science fiction. It's just no. that broad idea I, I've seen kind of be take, taken forward there. Uh, but there's a fire, and it's a, it's a disaster movie. There's a lot of trying to escape. There's a lot of trying to problem solve, figure out how to get people out of the building, how to put mm-hmm. out the fires. There's a, a large cast, which we'll get into in a second, but that's the basic gist of what the movie is. And... You may be surprised when you put it on to learn that it's two hours and 48 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> Good lord. I don't, mm. like, I, I don't want to get too much into it before you ask me officially, but, like, I didn't know how they were going to be able to fill two hours and 45 minutes with a building burning unless they just showed it in real time. Well, we're going to talk about how they filled up that time uh, yep. very shortly. But I will ask with the simple question that I always do. David, what did you think hmm. of The Towering Inferno? I I liked it. I, I'll just be upfront with that. I did like it. I think with any movie that's two hours and 45 minutes long, you're going to have some pacing problems. But honestly, less than I thought there would be. I think that this movie did 
a pretty decent job at keeping the sort of tension it needed to keep at least above bare minimum mm. the whole way through. It, it did a good job of keeping me kind of engaged the whole time. I think my biggest problem I have with it is that at a certain point in this movie, it kind of feels like they're just, I know it's going to sound weird, but inventing problems. Like it doesn't <laughs> feel like it follows a straight trajectory of, oh, the building's on fire. And it makes sense that this, 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 and this is a problem. Like at one point uh, they call in choppers and now all of a sudden like, oh, it's way too windy out. And it's, there's no way they're going to be able to land. I'm like, that has nothing to do with the fire. You're just adding all these other crazy things on top of it. But all in all, I did at least enjoy it the whole way through, which I thought for sure I would have tapped out around two hours in. But hey, it kept me. Yeah, I, I enjoy it too. Uh, the, 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 the length is a bit of an issue. And uh, I, I feel like... I think the pacing is actually really good for a good chunk of the movie. I think the first mm -hmm. act sets everyone up properly. It sets up our main players. It sets up the problems and the way it sort of snowballs. Well, there's a small problem that becomes a bigger problem. I think all that yeah. works. I think for me, there's a point though around 90 minutes to 100 minutes, somewhere in there, where it feels like I'm ready for it to go to its finale and like have its big final set yeah. piece. And then you look at the time and see that there's an hour left and you're like, wait a minute, how's <laughs> there an hour left? I feel like we're getting ready to f finish this off. And mm -hmm. I think there's maybe a 20 to 30 minute stretch there where you do feel, oh, this, this is, a, is a bit long now. I do think that it, it comes back around where there's some set pieces eventually then, you know, deep, deep into the movie where like, okay, mm -hmm. they had some big ideas for their final 30, 40 minutes. And I see why they wanted to get there, but there is that, that almost like it could have used that intermission where there's like a clear moment yeah. where the pacing comes crashing down to have a breather. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think when you're used to like an action movie or a survival movie, you're not necessarily used to them being quite this long. And mm -hmm. I think you feel that a little bit there, but um, I enjoy, obviously it's a lot of practical stuff. It's, it's working with real fire. There's, oh yeah. And it's not just like specific shots. There was a shot that it's a really small thing, but I really appreciate this. There's a shot where the, the firefighter chief is talking to someone and they're down the hall from where the fire is. And then the camera follows them. And then you see the fire at the end of the shot. And I thought, do you know what? It's one thing to have your practical fire effects set up for the shots where they're just in, but to actually plan it around the idea that you're going to move into the fire or, you know, mm. move from where there's no fire to where there is. Because typically... And the other shots where you don't see the fire, they'll just have some flickering red and yellow lights and stuff to right. emulate the fire, right? They'll 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 fake it. But this was a case of like, oh no, you had it prepped at the end of this one or if it's not I mean it's not really a it's not that long a shot, but yeah. in the sense of it really gave the impression that the fire is there and they're around it and you know it didn't do it every time, but it was just enough to give it this feeling of, oh no, they're actually around fire. It's building that suspension of disbelief and mm -hmm. you have uh, you have fun with that. So uh, yeah. Yeah. I think um, another thing, though, just thinking about it, that I I wouldn't say it's a problem as much as it is just when you're looking back on the movie afterwards, you kind of question the choices, is that obviously this is a skyscraper. I think they said it's like 130 floors, something like that. Uh, the party's on 135, and then there's like a couple of maintenance floors above. The, so so that's, like, that's like the top actual floor, and then there's a couple of, you know, right. other things so, above it because it is such a big building and this fire is spreading from like the midpoint in the building upwards the cast is spread out a lot over it now a lot of them are in the party section but like just to skip ahead to midway down the cast list 
O.J. Simpson is in this movie. And I say that because he's like the head of security. And I think, oh, that makes sense. He's going to be in this quite a bit. And, it, and then at one and point, it feels like he is for a while. Like the first, yeah, exactly. The first act, he's like, we're going back to the control room. He's making decisions. And then mm-hmm. he's going to try and rescue some people. And then there's a specific point, probably like 45 minutes in or something like that, where mm-hmm. you see him do something, you're like, fine. And then he just disappears. To, just gone. To the point where, an hour later, I was thinking about it, when I was still watching the movie, going, wait, did did he die and I missed it? Did he... Did he Same, was there, that's what I was thinking. Was there a thing? that something happened to him and I've just not caught on? And then, of course, at the very, very, very tippy end, mild spoilers, I guess, that he survived, mm-hmm. but he just shows up right at the very end, and I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> what were you exactly. doing all this time, OJ? <laughs> And that's the problem I was having with a lot of this movie is it felt like the cast list, it, because they were so spread out and because it is such a huge cast list of like named characters that we care about the arcs of, by the time that it hit a certain point in this movie, I felt like half the cast has kind of just been put on this like layaway, this sort of back end mm. where it's like, well, we don't care about them because we're more focused on what our main characters are doing. And then eventually we get back to it and say like, oh yeah, but... This is what happened to them. We we get one, like one little scene of wrap up for it. I think there's there's definitely like a couple of main stars who are your main characters. And then there's like mm-hmm. a B tier who have a reasonable amount to do, and then there's a C tier who are still filled up with big actor names, but mm-hmm. they they are more extended cameos than they are prominent characters. And I think when you go into it with right. that, I, I think I think it's actually mostly fine. I do agree with O.J. Simpson though, because it felt like the movie was setting him up as a prominent player. You know, unless he gets killed off randomly at some point, which I could have seen happening, but yeah. it felt like, no, no, he's got an important job in the building, and it felt like he's someone who's going to be helping make decisions, and then all of a sudden, you just don't see him again for, like, most of the movie, and it was really strange. Yeah, I guess it's just going back to the previous 70s season, things like Poseidon Adventure, everyone stayed together, like, the whole time. Yes, you got little mm. branches off where, like, people went and did other things, but for the most part... Even if you started with a big cast of characters, you followed that big cast around to the different locations. Everyone had time to be on camera with every sequence. Yeah. Whereas this one, you got long stretches where like there's a con man character. He shows up like maybe every 30 minutes just to remind you he's here. He's doing stuff. But to be fair, I mean, you've got a negative tone right now. And I don't necessarily think this is an all cons no. thing. I think there's pros and cons to this. I think... Yeah. Not doing the same thing as Poseidon Adventure, where you've got your main group all kind of huddled together the entire time, I mm-hmm. think is a part of the benefit to the movie that you do get to jump around and see them try to problem solve, where you know, you've got people on the bottom saying, okay, this floor is inaccessible now, but can we get anyone through via this other stairwell, and, and yeah. so on and so on. There's a lot of stuff like that where I do enjoy it. I think there might just be maybe just 30% too many characters. Just 30%, mm-hmm. right? There's just a few too many and a couple of them get really short changes as a result. But there's some that I think are, are quite effective for what they are. There's one really unlikable guy who you're kind of waiting for. He's come up in oh, the whole movie. The, that was the only character in the whole movie that the moment he showed up, I was like, well, someone's not making it to the end of this. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, we'll get into all of that when we go to spoilers yeah. and we talk about plot, though. I think we should mm-hmm. go down the cast list and talk about some of these big names because it, is a, it mm-hmm. is a star study. Like... If you, oh. if you thought Poseidon Adventure was star-studied, this was them upping it. So this is a couple of years later. This is 1974 this came out. And it mm-hmm. felt like, you know, we have to up everything. Everything has to be bigger. I mean, the building's bigger. And, I mean, th- th- this may actually sound a little bit morbid saying this now, but I feel like this is around the same time that the World Trade Center 
was built, right? It's around this time period. Give or take, yeah. Let me let me look that up real quick. And I do wonder if, because this is based on a book, and I do wonder if the building, maybe not of that specific building, but of similar mm. skyscrapers when it was all the rage to keep building taller and taller was what inspired yeah. this book. So this was built in 1970, or the World Trade Center was built in 1973. So oh. yes, it was like right around that same time period. Um, I do know that I've read a trivia on here that this, in the original book, this movie is set in San Francisco. In the original yeah. book, it was set in New York and it was actually a tower that was built right next to the World Trade Center. Well, for, for the sake of being uncomfortable and like, modern day i'm glad that change was made because that would yeah. be especially weird if it was like in the same location you could just fully imagine at some point like a fire chief saying a line like we got to stop this or it's going to bring down both the other towers and we just sit oh, there like God. oh no please stop. yeah that would have been bad i mean i did sort of i, I know there's obviously skyscrapers in san francisco but part of me did go mm. isn't san francisco known for earthquakes this feels unsafe to me but i mean i know japan has skyscrapers and they build them to withstand them yeah. like i know it's uh I know what they know what they're doing, but it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I would I would love if this movie, like the way that it justifies its runtime, is two hours in they put out the fire and, and it's like we hits. did it, and then an earthquake hits. <laughs> oh, that would be very unfortunate. It is, yeah. yeah, it's it's obviously one of these things where I remember for a few years after nine eleven that this mm. movie and a few movies that were like it were. Just kind of like not like banned or anything like that, but just they were kind of like not brought up. They were out of circulation. No right. one really wanted to watch. Like no one was in the mood to watch Tower and Inferno in you know December two thousand one. Like yeah. no one was in the mood for it. And obviously, it's very different. There's nothing that actually connects them, other than just some of the visuals, maybe making you think of that tragedy. And you know, yeah. So I I, I would say that it would. There's probably several sequences in this movie that would be just fully triggering for somebody that was around for 9-11 yeah. like someone that was in that sort of ground zero area but nowadays it's just like a cultural thing it's not something that has direct one-to-one -one, like oh this thing is exactly the same as 9-11 yeah so yeah um but it, it does kind of make it sad though because thinking about the idea that this was this time period like the the public were probably you know, th those buildings going up would have been a big thing, sort of culturally in the news, you know, and yeah. this building's even taller than they were. They were and, mm. I, I, you know, like, there's kind of a general theme in this movie is the idea that it's irresponsible to build buildings this tall and the firemen are very, very adamant that this is terrible and yeah. it's making our jobs tough and all you're doing is putting people in danger. And I, don't, I, I won't get into spoilers, but there's a line towards the end about, you know, one day thousands of people might die in one of these buildings and there's nothing we're going to be able to do about it. And if there's any moment that sort of triggers the memory of 9-11, it's that line where you're like, obviously it wasn't just a fire, it was a bit more direct than that, yeah. but it does, it, it makes you go, uh, uh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's got a point. So, to brighten the mood very quickly yes. here, yes. I have to read off this trivia bit. I'm curious if you already know this one. Uh, a man saw this film named Roderick Thorpe. Does that name sound familiar? Uh, I don't know. Not, 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 well, not, tip, not off the tip top of my, my head, anyway. Well, 
1979, because after he saw this, he had a dream about uh, being chased through a skyscraper through by like gun wielding assassins. He, uh, <laughs> oh, right, wrote okay. a, he wrote a book called Nothing Lasts Forever in 1979, uh-huh. which was then transitioned into the 1988 film Die Hard. Yes, I knew that was going to die. As soon as you mentioned the gunman, I'm like, okay, this is the guy who wrote Die Hard. Yep. <laughs> uh, that, that is inter- that's an interesting connection between them, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's the sort of, like, even before I read that, there were a bunch of visual things that reminded me a lot of, like, the low-down shots in Die Hard where they look up at the mm. Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And Die Hard is the better movie, so I'm glad that this, this, this oh, yeah. led to the existence of Die Hard. But... Uh, no, I do enjoy this a lot, and uh, you know, a big part of it is the star-studied nature, it's the spectacle, mm-hmm. and I think the spectacle does somewhat hold up, because it is practical effects, it is stuntmen on oh, fire, yeah. it's miniatures, it's all these things. That's not to say, obviously, it's photo really, you can't see how they're doing certain things, because you absolutely can. Yeah, but every once fun. in a while they do a uh, matte painting, like when they're looking down off the edge of the tower or something, mm-hmm. it's like, you can tell that's a matte painting, but... Yeah. It, it's you, one shot every like hundred or even when you get a shot of the city and you can see this huge building in it you can tell the building's mm. been put into the you know the shot it's not oh yeah it's it's, it's clearly an effect but yeah at, so this, at no point at all did they contact the zoning commission and said hey would it make sense to put a skyscraper right here in the middle of town <laughs> so the cast here uh so paul newman is very much our lead he's the architect mm-hmm. who built the place and i think for the record we're probably mostly going to refer to the characters by their actors just because there's so many of them and they're well-known actors it's just easier yeah. for the most part. Um, so Paul Newman is the architect, and he wants to retire. That's kind of where we start off. He wants to sort of quit city living and go off, but he's designed this building. Uh, Steve McQueen is Chief O'Halloran. He's the fire chief. He's the one. So you don't see him until like a good 40 minutes in when the fire yeah. <laughs> department are called in. But he obviously becomes a big part of it once that happens because he's the one making all the decisions about how to save people, about what to do. Uh, William Holden is the guy who built the place. You know, he he paid for it. He owns it. It's his building. He, he's yep. uh, Jim Duncan. It's Duncan Enterprises. Faye Dunaway's in here as the love interest to Paul Newman. She knows him and she, they've got a, a minor thing early on where she wants to go with him to go live somewhere away from the city, but she's just been given this job offer to become chief editor wherever she works. And I don't think we ever actually get like, is it a newspaper? Is it a publishing? Like, I don't, we don't know. We don't yeah. know what type of publishing uh, we're talking about here. But uh, I was thinking, I was thinking news, but I really don't know. Yeah, she strikes me as like the lowest lane type in this. Yeah, but I don't know though because I, I may just be thinking of that because I think she's a network which was news related. Oh, okay. So it may just be like cross pollination of over. other fade on I mean let's just make it a cinematic universe call it a day <laughs> uh, we got Fred Astaire uh, is this older gentleman who's coming mm-hmm. to be on a date with another character then uh, he has a few reveals across the way mm-hmm. uh, the d- person he's there to date is Patty who's this uh, nice older woman no I think uh, no? is it not Patty it might be, but I think it's Jennifer Jones. Oh, you may be right. The older woman. In my defense, the photos here, they're much older than they were in this movie. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so, okay. So, Lizette, or Lizalette. Lisa. Yeah, because he calls, called. he calls her Lisa, yeah, at one point. That's, that makes yeah. sense. Is, all, is Lisa always short for Lizalette? I've never heard that before. No. I think Lisa's usually just Lisa. Okay. This is just an older name. Fair enough. Uh, fair enough. Uh, so, 
And then we have, yeah, Patty, I think, is uh, the daughter of the guy, who, uh, the, the owner. So Duncan's Duncan, daughter yeah. is Patty, played by Susan Blakely. And her husband, the son-in-law, is Simmons, played by Richard Chamberlain. And he's kind of the villain of the movie because he's the guy that they hired to do all the electrical systems when they were building the place. And would you believe it? They may not be up to the standard that Paul Newman wanted when he originally plotted this place out. What? No. So that may be some of the cause. But as we said, we got O.J. Simpson as the head of security in the building. Robert Vaughn shows up as a senator who's just kind of at the party. He doesn't really have that much to do, but he is there a lot of the time. Yeah. I I think it's basically just to add to this idea of, okay, here are certain people in the party that you're going to assume or one way or the other are either safe or not safe based off of their roles. Mm. And then it's about, are you right? Are you wrong? Let's see. You got to stay tuned. Yeah. And I think having a senator there is the one where it's like, well, they're not going to kill off a senator, are they? Uh, but then the mayor's also there, played by Robert Wagner, and then yep. his wife is there as well, uh, played by Susan Flannery. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like that's that. I mean, that's and that's I would say all the prominent players. But then there's a couple of firefighters who get a little bit more screen time. There's some smaller roles that kind of pop up and are a little bit memorable here or there. There's a couple who are having like a a, a romantic night in like one of the the, the bedrooms next to the offices, and yep. they're they're there. So there's a um, huge cast. Uh, there's a deaf woman and her two children. That's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, what, what was, wasn't it a blind woman in Poseidon Adventure? Or was that a different 70s one we did that had a blind woman? I'm trying to remember. Because yeah. they're, they're all meshing together in my head. Is it possible Same. that it was a sequel to Poseidon Adventure that had the blind woman? Potentially. Yeah. But in order to find out that, I'd have to go join the Patreon. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't remember, but you're right. One of them definitely had a blind woman, uh, mm-hmm. which you know makes sense. It's this uh, sort of uh, vulnerability that comes up that yeah. you realize someone needs help in a way that no one else did. So someone who isn't going to hear the warnings the same way that everyone else is, literally in this case. Yeah. So yeah, uh, that's the that's the huge ass cast, and they have varying degrees of amounts to do. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's very much the Paul Newman and Steve McQueen show if we're if we're boiling it down to two characters, yeah, I would say. pretty much. I would say the, as you were saying, those are the A tier. I would then add in the B tier is probably like Jim Duncan, the wife of Doug, and the son-in-law would probably be most of the B tier there. Yeah. I forgot that. I don't think they know he was married to Paul Newman's character. I don't think they're married. Are they just dating? I think they're just dating, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I think they're at that point where they're about to commit to that, and that's why it's like, oh, does she take the mm-hmm. job or move out to the... I guess I just kind of assume, like, I know it doesn't make any sense, but I just assume that 70s still had that, like, Puritan mindset of, like, no sex before marriage. You have to be married in these movies if you show two <laughs> characters having sex. No. I, I think this was just... Because there's... There's two couples in this that seem to have sex when they're not married. And I think that's just a sign of the times that that was starting to be okay to show that in a Hollywood mm. movie. Fair. Because all Fair. the independent stuff was doing full nudity at this point. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so Hollywood was like, okay, we can be risky too. Look, they, they, ha- they shared a bed. They're not in separate beds. Like, look at how progressive we are. <laughs> Please come see our movie. <laughs> This weekend we got shocking. To be fair, Faye Dunaway's dress in this is pretty, like, risque right. looking. 
Yeah, so I'm just going to throw this out here because it's the only part that's going to make sense. Uh-huh. Her, Faye Dunaway, and the daughter-in-law, who I guess was Patty. Well, just daughter. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. The son's the son-in-law. Son the daughter's just a yeah. daughter. <laughs> they are wearing, like, the same dress and have, like, the same haircut. And I gotta tell you, for a lot of the movie... <laughs> I was really confused as to who was talking to who. I mean, there. I wasn't because there's like 20 years between them. It's, I mean, and I know who Faye Dunaway is, so she always, I guess. she's just always Faye Dunaway. Well, but it, it also bothers me the point where there's a section where the son-in-law like almost kind of starts hitting on Susan. Oh yeah, he does. It's not even just kind of, he's straight up trying to have an yeah, affair. He's straight, yeah, absolutely. But like, that's what made it even more confusing to me because I'm like, are you still just hitting on the same woman? Is it not? I'm so... Ah, and that's a that was another problem I had with not a lot of the cast, but a bunch of the B tier. All of them were like brunette, had blue eyes, were white, and like a lot of them blended together in the early movie until they managed to find their niche and mm. like I figured out who was who. Yeah, well, once they've got their own little plot lines going, you kind of like separate them easy because yeah. they've they've got their own thing that they're doing, so you get it from context. But right, but it took like the whole first act to get to that for me okay okay uh yeah um i feel like it's probably just time for spoilers at this point because i <laughs> don't know. Yeah, not really um the only other thing i'd throw in is that this movie did a crap ton of oscar work the year it came out uh got nominated for one two three four five six seven different oscars no sorry eight different oscars and it won three of them so definitely a big winner in terms of critical appraise there that's interesting because this is not the type of movie going forward that you think of as being awards no uh, definitely not this is a blockbuster this is your i mean blockbuster the term hadn't really existed yet but that's effectively what this is it's there's a big mm. cast it's big spectacle you kind of get that because they're dealing with so many characters and it's more about surviving you don't necessarily get great character stories in the same way that you do in a drama and right. i feel like Certainly, for the longest time that I can remember, that's what the awards bodies tend to really, you know, respond to. Yeah. So I mean, I'm not going to say I, it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Actor in a Supporting Role, but in terms of the lesser stuff, like film editing, uh, Best Original Song, and Cinematography were the only things that it won for. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is the sort of film that I'd expect to want stuff for its stunts and effects. Although, there's actually mm. no Oscar for stunt work, which is baffling. Well, I've heard that, and I've heard it explained that basically they refused to make it a stunt work one because it would encourage riskier and riskier stunts, and therefore mm. would be like a dangerous arms race. That's what I've heard. I don't know how true it is. I mean, I, I can understand that logic. I feel like... <laughs> Maybe if you don't award it to the most dangerous stunts, though, and just award it to the, the stunts that benefit the movie the most, maybe that would get yeah. around that, but... Okay, fair enough. Well, all, all that happened, though, is the stunt people made their own stunt awards. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. what happened. So I don't, I don't know if that even gets around the arms race part of it, but... Well, it gets around the notoriety of it. I suppose. Like, what are the stunt awards called? The stunties. The stunties? Uh, look, I I saw I part of a ceremony it. once. This was probably like 15 years ago. I just remember a clip of Arnold going up to present an award. And obviously he's in a lot of action movies, so he owes stuntmen a lot, you know, for, for the movies that he does. 
And he mm. comes up, he says, they say winning one of these awards is like winning an Oscar. Well, I wouldn't know, but... And then he could, I, I remember, you know what? That was a good joke, Arnold. That was, that was yeah. funny. That was very good. Perfect. Mm. Uh, apparently, they the biggest one is called the Taurus World Stunt Awards. It was probably that, I imagine. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, well, all right. Spoilers then for Tower and Inferno. Yep. We'll get into it. I don't imagine we're going to go through this in order, per se, because... Oh, God, I don't know if I can go through it in order. Yeah. There's so much happening. I feel like, yeah, just taking characters and going through what they go through. Maybe just broad strokes talking about how the fire starts and how it mm-hmm. kind of spreads. Uh, and they set up right away that like some of the systems aren't finished yet. And it gives us this example, because we see the initial fire. It's basically just yeah. a fuse box goes in like a closet somewhere that's got some supplies, but some of them are flammable, so it's, you know... <laughs> And they make that clear. This is, this is quite literally, like, in all of the fire safety videos where they show, <laughs> like, here's the things you don't put around fire things. All of it's here. They've got all of these used rags next to a bucket that's labeled yep. flammable. Like, it's horrible the whole way across. And this does set off a thing, but it sets off a thing for the main control room where there's no fire. Like, and OJ's mm-hmm. looking at the camera and he's like, this is weird. Like, keep an eye on that because something went off. So, mm-hmm. but they established that a lot of the systems aren't working properly yet. The wiring's not great. That's a big plot point. And yeah. the sprinkler system's not working yet. <laughs> so, which, which would have helped they, quite a bit, quite frankly. They, they keep on saying throughout this movie that everything was built up to code. I have to imagine the sprinklers <laughs> not working is not up to code. That seems to me like a pretty obvious one there. Well, I think that's a knock-on effect of the wiring being faulty. Because mm-hmm. I think... One of the things that keeps coming up is that, so this fuse box in the main room, the main operator room goes, and Paul Newman comes down. This is after he's had his little nooner with Faye Dunaway in his bedroom yeah. office. And he comes down and he looks at it and he looks at the wire and he, he looks kind of pissed. And he goes up to the boss man and says, well, why is this wire being used? Like, I need to talk to your son-in-law. He's the one who got all the wiring done. Mm-hmm. And he actually takes a cab out to where his son-in-law lives. Uh, and goes there and we we interest to the the, the the daughter of the, the boss, right? Paul Newman talks to her for a bit. But he's clearly yeah. upset, he's clearly pissed and he used to talk to the husband. And sure enough, this asshole comes in. Simmons walks in and he's like, Hey, we need to talk about like, you know, did did you like cut some corners to save some money with the wirings and all that? And he's like, mm. Look, it's all up to code and he's like, Yeah, but this building's freaking huge. It's basically its own town. The code, it, like, the code works for, like, a, a building that's got three floors because it's designed mm-hmm. to only operate a certain amount of capacity of, of electricity, of whatever, and you can escape it easily if there's a fire. <laughs> like, there's, there's lots of reasons why the code is designed for buildings of a normal size. This mm-hmm. building needs to go above and beyond. Um, and he's he's a little shit about it every time it comes up. Because later yeah. on, like, the, the dad is like, Listen, you little shit. If I found out this happened because you cheaped out on wiring, we're, we're going to be having words, and then I'm going to hang you. <laughs> Which I... He is the worst. I'm not going to lie. He is the absolute worst. But I do like how they gave him the backfill of, like, he didn't do this just to be evil. Like, he did it because he was told by his father-in-law, we need to cut costs in the electrical department. And... The father-in-law just didn't care how it really happened, so he cut the corners in these fuse boxes yeah. or wirings or whatever. The, yeah, the the boss man basically 
didn't know what he was doing to save money, but he also didn't ask questions, which, so, mm. he he is guilty here, but he's guilty more of, like, ignorance and just sort of, yeah. like, whatever's saving me money, I'm not going to ask questions. Whereas the son-in-law knew exactly what corners were being cut. Because uh, at mm. one point later on, Paul Newman says to the boss man, he's like, if money was tight, if you couldn't afford the millions and millions to do this building, then cut floors, don't cut corners. Like, you know, take off the top 20, have it be 100 floors tall. But of mm. course, it's all about the hubris. It's about having the tallest building in the world. It's about, yeah. you know, uh, and that's one of the things that reminded me of something like Chernobyl as it was all kicking off, is that Paul Newman very quickly, as soon as he knows there's a fire that's starting to spread, he calls the boss man and says, evacuate the party right now. You have to get them out of there. This is dangerous. Yeah. And he's like, no, 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 no. There's no sharks in the water. We can open the beaches. Like, and this is before Jaws, so that trope is already a yeah. thing. Jaws did not invent the, the mayor who wants to keep the beaches open. That's just the specifics. I'm pretty sure capitalism invented the mayor <laughs> that wants to keep the beaches open. That's a fair, fair way of looking at it. But that that's, you know, that... And that's the sad part, is that if they'd started evacuating as soon as Paul Newman said they should... Because, effectively, uh, Steve McQueen, the fire chief, has to come in and basically strong-arm him to do it. And that's mm. when they start evacuating. If he started evacuating the 20, 30 minutes when he first was told to... They may have got everyone out before there was any real danger, but instead yeah. they end up trapped up there and, you know, half the movie yep. plays out. So that's and I thing. will I will also say it seems that this fire started, the electrical system blew out, I would say maybe midday, mm. afternoon, somewhere in there. But nobody knows it's there. Nobody sees it in this closet until the party begins at like seven, eight o'clock at night. Yeah, I think because there's, there's mentioned that this is a residential floor and most of the residential area has not been moved into yet. So there's not mm. a lot of people around to notice it or find it. Because um, they established that up until like floor 80, it's all commercial, it's all businesses and offices. Yeah. And then above that is, is where people live. And... You know, they say that the deaf woman and her kids live up somewhere. Not not in that floor, mm. but maybe a couple floors above it. I think it was 87 yeah. they live on, and the fire started in 81 or something thereabouts. Yeah, give or take. Yeah. Uh, so, like, all, all of this setup is is enjoyable enough to see it kind of starting to spread in the background, but you've got all this sort of the, the politics in the foreground. I do appreciate, because mm. obviously Steve McQueen, as soon as he shows up, is blaming Paul Newman for building this monstrosity and, like, it's your fault that this is all going down. But I think Paul Newman's sympathetic to the audience because as soon as he's aware that some corners have been cut, he knows that this is this is bullshit, that it's dangerous, that oh, yeah. this is, they've made mistakes here, and it's, he, he, he is, like, desperate to, like, solve all these problems the second that he's aware that there is problems. So... Mm. We sympathize with him, but obviously, again, the hubris of even him, even though we see Duncan, the boss, as being the one who's hubris, and he's making really bad decisions throughout this whole movie based on his hubris. Mm. At building this place initially, there was hubris from Paul Newman's character as well. I mean, it's before the movie starts, obviously, but the fact that he even built this place came from a place of hubris as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, just to jump all the way to the very end, honestly, the last line of the fireman as you said before mm-hmm. of you know thousands of people are going to die and all that that's kind of the story there is it's not that you can't build this stuff but you need to build this stuff with like people in mind not just setting these records or doing these huge things and that's why he says like if you want to build these things you got to do it with the, like the fire department advising you not like ran- random son-in-law who thinks he knows how to do electrical work yeah it's 
there's a message there, and I'm also tempted to whip out the Jurassic Park quote once again. You were too preoccupied mm. if you could. <laughs> you never stopped to wonder if you should. Yeah. Uh, and that, that kind of comes back as well here. Uh, so I, I think the message is simple. It, it, it's clear. It's all these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the characters are enjoyable to watch, and I think that 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 goes a long way for for the most part. Oh, yeah. uh, and there's a couple of surprising moments that are a bit darker. I think uh, the first big dark kind of like oh so, something's really this is getting really bad here is the the couple that are separated because they're having sex mm. in like a bedroom and ne- next to the offices, and yep. they don't even know anything's going on until they go to open the door. It's like a secretary and like a guy that works there. And they open the door and there's flames and there's fire. And I think, even though I had seen this before, it had been a long time, so I didn't really remember where this went. I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a subplot for a while where they're going to try to get yeah, out. Yeah, they just have to like live for a while until someone gets to them. But it's, the next time we cut back to them, which is quite quickly, uh, they're like trying to think of their options. And he's lied to her and said that he called someone, but the phone's dead. They can't get through to anyone. Mm-hmm. So he gets some towels, you know, gets them wet, puts them over his head, and he's like, I'm going to make a run for it. I'm going to go and get help, and you're going to be okay. And he runs out the door, and there's this great wide shot from outside the window, oh, yeah. looking at him running across this room. That's it's, it's, it's a big lobby-style area, so it's a big open space. Mm-hmm. And there's fire everywhere, and he gets caught on fire very quickly. So he's running on fire in this this big wide space. It's, glor- it's in mm-hmm. slow motion. It all looks great. Uh, you can, I mean, you can see one of the things about watching movies where people are getting burned, uh, stuntmen and stuff, is that if you yeah. pay attention, you can see how thick their padding is so that they're not yeah. actually getting burned. And that's fair. Like, I'm not complaining about that. But you can see that in the in the shot. But what makes this, I think, especially dark, though, is that so he very quickly just dies. He fails. But what oh, yeah. I wasn't expecting is almost immediately, I thought, okay, she's going to be huddling in fear, but someone's going to stumble onto her later. Someone's going to show up later and find her. No, no. She mm. immediately... Uh, like the fire starts spreading into the room where she was hiding. She's immediately struggling. She gets set in fire and actually jumps out the window and yep. she falls to her death screaming, which is a very dark moment. I did not see it going that dark that quickly. And I felt no, like, okay, same. you know what? You've set up the stakes here. You've set up that a character, not like a huge character, but you've set up a recurring character has just went out like that. And there is one, so there's one death later on that really surprised me actually, which we'll, okay. we'll talk about. So for that sequence, I agree. I think that it does set up like this. I Because, okay, the guy who was set on fire first, he actually cut the phone lines himself due to he just didn't want anyone calling him. So Because they're having a secret affair. Right. So that's one of those things where it's like, okay, you reap what you sow. That is kind of on you. It makes sense that in a disaster movie, he would be killed off because of his own action there. But for the woman to die... And in such a horribly brutal way, not just burning, but falling out of the 60th floor of this building, it does set up that idea of like, okay, you don't know who's safe anymore. It's not just bad people are going to die here. Like, a lot of people, named characters, are going to die here. And if anything, I was surprised it didn't, we didn't get reactions of people on the outside where this body yeah. landed. And I think I think it might have just been because like, they probably just knew it was too dark. Or maybe they even shot something and went, you know what, this is just too... Like, well, yeah, throughout the movie, we don't get, like, any sort of ground reaction. And they do multiple shots throughout this every time that, like, a gas line blows up where you see the fire explode out the side of a building. Yeah. And I kept expecting there to be, like, a crowd of people at the bottom looking up and being like, oh, my God, the humanity. But 
we never really saw the ground crew save for the people who were like emergency services that were directly working on it yeah and, and arriving and stuff i i did mm-hmm. enjoy there's a couple of sequences uh early on when fred astaire first arrives and he's like in the cab and we find mm-hmm. out later he's a con man so you sort of think back to this scene and like he says he's got nothing smaller than a 50 do you have change and the guy's like no so he he counts out the exact change which yeah 95 cents for a cab ride does feel very cheap <laughs> by today's standards he's, he just started at the block next yeah. to him he didn't want to walk it <laughs> that's what you're telling yourself this was actually half the city he traveled through and it was that cheap because it's 1974 <laughs> I was born in the wrong time, Pete. <laughs> oh dear! Actually, for a different movie, I I did some fact checking yesterday and oh. discovered that in 1950 the Earth's population was only 2.5 billion, and it's 8 billion now. And I was thinking to myself, no wonder it was so easy to get a good job back in like our like yeah. parents and grandparents' generation. There was like a third of the people. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you did have, like, less to do back then. You don't have as much global stuff. Oh, but yeah, no, that's... Yeah, Jesus Christ. Anyway, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a moment where he, like, looks up at the building when he arrives, and you get the, the, the low-angle shot looking up, and it's very intimidating. You get that a couple more times. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of them leads to, like, a funny moment for me, is that when they're doing the whole cutting the ribbon outside before the party's starting, yeah. right? And they look up and the lights in the building, they, just, they trigger all the lights to come on at the same time. And it looks good. Although, I did a question. The, the first, the, the ultra-wide shot you get last, there, there is other lights on in other buildings, but the first mm-hmm. kind of wide shot where you see the lights on in the building, there's like no lights on in any of the other buildings. And I'm like, why is the rest of the city get no power? <laughs> like... They had to drain it all just to get this one building up and running. Yeah, but that leads to the the thing that made me laugh a little bit uh, is that Paul Newman's like you know on the emergency phones in the building like trying to fix things through all this. He's not he's not at the ceremony. He's trying to solve problems. He's literally trying to put out fires, mm-hmm. and he calls people and he's saying, "Hey, the wiring up in this junction box is hot. Like we need to take it easy on the system." Just so I think this is before he's found the actual fire. He's just concerned that there's more things starting. Yeah, and he says we have to keep it cool because like these wires are turning, and this is probably because they're they're using cheap wires, right? They're, they're running hotter than they should be. Mm. And he's saying, "Hey, we need to keep it." It's like, what? How much power is being used right now? And the guy in the phone's like, "Oh, we've got the building lit up for the ceremony." He's like, "What do you mean you've got the building lit up? How many lights are on?" He's like, "All of them. All of them. <laughs> Turn them off right now." <laughs> well, I love that even when he says all of them and turn him off like the guy's like i can't do that i i have a direct order and he's like dude i'm not telling you to shut off the entire building's worth of power just all the extra stuff where nobody currently is there's a oh okay i could do that there's 135 floors only two or three of them need power right now right yeah only two or three of them need lights on turn the rest of them off god damn it (laughs) you put the residential floors on I'd imagine all of the office things are evacuated, or not evacuated, but, like, nobody's in them at this point in the day. Yeah. And then the top floors. So you need maybe, like, a third of the building lit. F that. even. Yeah, F that. So, like, yeah. So I think that that's a fun moment. And then the other moment I like setting up the, the threat of how tall this building is in the context of a disaster is... When the fire department are called after the first fire, sort of like, because, and to be fair, OJ Simpson's character's smart because they detect like a fire uh, mm. at this door and he's like, hey, I know we've got an automatic line to the fire department. I'm not trusting it. Call it. 
call them yeah. directly and tell them to get out here. Well, apparently the original system is supposed to be like when it detects a fire, it calls them automatically. Yeah, that's what it's supposed and, to do, yeah. Yeah, and even he noticed like it got the signal, but it didn't call them. So something's got to be up and they were going to call the fire department. But then one of the guys is like, there's no fire. We can't see anything. It's totally good. And OJ Simpson yeah. being the only intelligent character here is like, all right, well, how about you just keep an eye on that? Which I guess goes on for the next like seven hours. But when, when we get to, we cut to the fire department and you know, we're seeing them all come down the poles and they're, they're going to the trucks. It cuts to a shot while they're on their way driving through the city of uh, two of the, the characters that we kind of see recurring throughout. There's like a, there's like a black guy and a white guy who are mm-hmm. uh, sort of, they're, they're not like prominent characters, but they, they're the ones that are, so anytime we go to a couple of characters that we kind of know in the fire department that's not the chief, it's them yeah. that are doing stuff. And the one of the guys is like, hey, what building's at this, this address? This is on this street corner. And then he pauses and realizes, oh shit, it's that tower that they've just built. And like he gets really like, oh no, like like whenever there's a tower like that, it's on fire. It's like being inside a chimney when once it yeah. goes up. Um, and so it, it really sets up the idea of like the height of this thing just being a death trap if if anything mm-hmm. does go on. And yeah, I think if if the systems worked, if the sprinklers came on, there may be a very different story. But obviously, we're in a world oh, where yeah. that's not happening. Well, even then, at the very beginning of the movie. Um, because the fire itself starts like 10 minutes in. It takes maybe until, I don't know, 30 minutes before it actually starts spreading anywhere. Yeah, because eventually very... someone notices the door and it's actually, right. there's like a, a character who seems like he's going to be prominent, who's like the second in command to Paul Newman, mm-hmm. who goes to protect the security guys about to open it because he realizes, oh, there's going to be like a backdraft or, or whatever. Yeah. And... He gets badly burned, and you find out later in the movie that he's died in hospital. So he mm-hmm. he goes. There we go. Yep. But no, that was uh, literally the whole thing. Is that it, it? At the beginning here, it's all so contained, and then that door opens up, and immediately from that point on, like they just can't control it at all. It uh, honestly, I thought it was going to be a um, like a false start sort of thing, mm. where they have this specific fire that they caught and. They open up the door, and the moment they open the door, they've got a hose on it nearly, like, immediately. They are able to take this thing on. But I thought they were actually going to put it out and say, okay, we handled that, but the electrical system still screwed. There could be fires starting literally anywhere else right now. And it was going to be some other fire that actually, like, engulfed the building. But it ended up being just this one. They couldn't get under control the whole time, and it started climbing up i mean eventually you do see like a fire on a second floor on the exterior shots and i was actually wondering Mm -hmm. if another one started apparently it did according to this uh the couple that snuck away and they were like trapped Mm -hmm. the ones that the guy who ran the 110 seconds flat uh he that one was apparently a fire that started on floor 65 so okay yeah that was just an entirely separate fire that started up yeah for them specifically i mean given the fact that they blow a fuse that almost starts a fire at the start of the movie and then mm-hmm. they're saying that the wiring and all the building is like this it, it's not that far-fetched to think that once they're overloading it with having all the lights turned on that it, it mm-hmm. probably does just start another spark or two here or there and oh, some yeah. of them might be lucky and that there's nothing to catch fire next to it but some of them mm-hmm. obviously as we see here next to flammable barrels of things and and whatnot yep so uh, that sets up all that stuff going forward. So, mm. yeah. So just the characters, like the son-in-law, for example, 
he tries to have an affair with Faye Dunaway at the party. He down he, he talks down to his wife. He he's mad to even be accused of anything. And obviously, once stuff starts going, the difference between him and the the father, because even though the father, you know, the guy who owns the place, Duncan, even though mm. he does have the hubris and he does make some decisions that, frankly, have led to people dying by not evacuating right away, by not taking it seriously, by insisting yep. and pretending that everything's okay for too long. He, at least by the end of the movie, he has had an arc where at the end, he's he is the one who's like, okay, I don't think all of us are going to make it, but I promise you I'm going to be the last one who, who goes. Like, me, and, me yeah. and my stupid son-in-law are going to be last. And if son-in-law was originally number 40 out the door, <laughs> now he's number 140 because he's a dick. But And now, of course, the son-in-law has his heel turn where he tries to escape because he gets scared mm. uh, multiple times, in fact, uh, throughout the movie. But, you know, so at least he has a sympathetic arc where he does at least feel the guilt of, like, he's got a part to play in what's happened here. He knows that he's yeah. responsible and he's going to try and hold himself and, and his son-in-law accountable <laughs> for what it is. Whereas the son-in-law doesn't want to f- hold himself accountable he, for anything. He, he reminded me, God, I think his name was Mansley from The Iron Giant. Oh, okay. Did you ever see that one? I mean, I've seen the Iron Giant. I don't remember the character's yeah. name. M- Mansley was the the dude who spoilers for Iron Giant, I guess. Uh, at the <gasps> towards the very end, he's you know he's told like something bad's about to happen. He's just like screw that, I'm out, and he just tries to run away <laughs> immediately. Yeah, he he's thoroughly unlikable. As we'll get to his demise when we actually go through all the different set pieces, because that's a big set piece that's tied to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, we have that. Uh, as far as other characters go, I guess the big thing is they set up the deaf woman and mm-hmm. the woman, uh, Lisa, is friends with her and knows about her. So when she becomes aware that there's a fire, she goes to floor 87 to try and help her because she's like, oh, she's not going to hear that there's a problem. So she she yeah. goes there and eventually OJ sees her on the cameras and says, oh shit, there's people on 87 and him and mm-hmm. Paul Newman go up to get them. Um, the mom actually kind of disappears from the movie. OJ gets her first. Yeah, and there, there was one cutaway later on where we see her being treated by like medical professionals. Yeah, so she she got out. She's out of the building. She's no longer a factor. But the kids and Lisa are left with Paul Newman, and we get like a whole big sequence where Paul Newman uh, goes in to get the kids out one by one, and he has to go mm-hmm. in. And he's, he's brave, and there's fire, and he gets them. But they have like her, their whole like they're trying to get back to the party floor, and there's like a staircase way that's been completely destroyed and there's a whole big mm. climbing sequence where he climbs down and then he climbs down with the little girl on the back of his neck and the the boy climbs down on his own he feels confident enough to do it but lisa's really scared and she doesn't want to so paul yeah. newman has to talk her through it and she is terrified the whole time and it's partly why i was so surprised that she died very suddenly later on because not mm. only does she have this big moment where she gets through her, her, her fear and she's able to get through it she then later, you know, finds uh, Fred Astaire again, and he admits that he's a con man and that he was trying to con her out of money by making her buy shares in a fake company or something mm-hmm. like that. And she's like, I don't care. You're a nice man. Just, you know, like, now that you've been honest, like, maybe I can teach you, you know, we can find out what you're good at and make you a better person. And it feels like, oh, we're setting up a happy thing here with them. Mm-hmm. And the whole movie, like, I'm waiting for them to use the... Uh, what do they call it? The scenic elevator, yes. the one that's on the outside of the building. And I'm yeah, like, they oh. set it up very early on that there's something that goes all the way from ground floor all the way up, and it's outside of the building entirely. Yeah. You're like, there is no way in hell that thing is making it to the end of this movie. 
well my my thought is there's no way in hell we're not using that for mm-hmm. for for drama and suspense because it's too tantalizing oh yeah uh, also you're not catching me dead ever doing a scenic elevator in a building this tall not a chance in hell i saw i i it was probably for like an amusement park ride i just saw it online the other day of a elevator that uses like lcd screens oh, on yeah. all the walls and stuff mm-hmm. to like simulate the idea of okay. a scenic elevator but like it's not actually there it's just like a normal elevator trip up i would do that but that is the <laughs> farthest i would get uh, i mean i've been in the scenic elevator of a building that's like 10 floors tall and that was okay i was fine with mm-hmm. that yeah i mean i <laughs> i don't have a particular fear of heights i i worked a very long time on like forklifts that went up a good like 80 feet in the air so i don't have a horrible fear of heights but at a certain point probably around the 30th story i'm just gonna say man wasn't meant to be up this high yeah we just don't need to go up here yeah it's not i i wouldn't say that's a fear of heights at that but i think someone who has a fear of heights is up a ladder and they're starting to feel woozy and like yeah you know like something's going to happen i, I think uh being up an absurd amount of like floors of a skyscraper where yeah you are screwed if anything goes wrong and you can't get down i don't think that's that's unreasonable at all <laughs> so anywho uh th- th- this uh leads to some converging plot points you know steve mcqueen's trying to solve problems through all this one of the big mm. things though is that they can't use the the main elevators to get people down from the party so they start yeah. using the scenic elevator but they can only use about 12 people at a time so they don't overload it because they risk, you know, breaking it if they well, do any more than that. Real quick, before we do the scenic, I just wanted to talk about that main elevator. Sure. So they're loading them down, full elevators at a time, oh, sending them down yeah, the yeah, okay. I know you're, that, there's a big scene, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. they're told that they can't use it and the boss man announces to everyone we, it's not safe to use these elevators even though they're technically mm-hmm. still working and a, a batch of people ignore them and rush onto the elevator mm-hmm. right and they specifically say these things have like heat sensors or something like that that if there is a fire they might honestly open up right where the fire is and that would just be awful and all i can think is that sounds like the worst design decision of all time <laughs> but sure okay and sure enough we cut to steve mcqueen and his men are fighting the fire it's smoky it's orange everything's like everyone's sweating and they're all greasy and then the elevator door opens and you just hear like a cacophony of wilhelm screams as they all just like get burned and there's smoke and then and then the elevator actually goes back up to the party floor which i'm not sure why it does that but i don't care because the visual of like this party seeing these people like come out of the elevator on fire and like dying is like mm. horrific and it's like okay now they're all scared like before they understood there was a disaster and that they might be in danger but now they have seen firsthand what might happen yeah. to them well that was up until this point uh duncan he has been underselling this whole thing yeah, he's yeah. like look it's down on the 80th floor we're 50 stories up it's a small fire you no problem everything's fine and even when he's saying we can't use this elevator he's just like it's just a precaution no need to worry everything's cool ding 
ding opens back up dude just runs in on fire i mean hell in he, through the ballroom even when he's initially announcing we all have to go down to the lobby he's saying we're still going to have to party down there we're going to be serving yeah. cocktails down there and then by the end of the movie you see the lobby and it's like a medical treatment area with people all being yeah. treated for burns and injuries and there's doctors running around and i'm like oh yeah where's the cocktails duncan <laughs> They're in the building next door. We had to move them. <laughs> oh, dear. So, that's, that, that, that's a really great moment. And I'm not even getting to the set piece with the... Because the scenic elevator set piece is much, much later. Because one of the yeah. big things that happens in the movie that stops them using this is actually that the power system just dies completely. So now they're in mm-hmm. the building with no power. Uh, other than... There's, I think there's like a there's an elevator for ground to 60 that is running on a, on a sort of a backup power. But, yeah, like batteries. But that doesn't help anyone that's trapped above. You know, that doesn't help it. That's, I feel like that's just something they've written in here to explain how the firefighters can get up and down to their base yeah. of operations. And But it doesn't affect any of the drama above that. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. Let's just roll with that. I mean, I, I do think this did a pretty good job of... I'm not going to say geography exactly, but like batches of floors. You get the sure. idea of like main fire is 80 moving up party is at 130 and then safety is like below 60 yeah and i think one of the geography things they do here is that they realize that even whilst the power's still on and they're getting people out of this scenic elevator they they, they do realize that this is taking a long time it's going to take so long mm-hmm. and robert vaughn who doesn't have a lot to do in this movie but he turns and says look those of us who are you know have got good hearts who are not too overweight should probably start using the uh the stairs and Duncan's yep. like, it's 135 floors. He's like, yeah, but going down's a lot easier than going up, which is which is fair. In fact, yeah. this movie was giving me flashbacks because I uh, I remember when I went to university and I was in like a sort of tall tallish. I mean, it was only like 14 floors, but it was a tallish building mm-hmm. that I was used to being in. And every so often, you'd say, "I'll just take the stairs because the elevator's taking too long. It's too busy." And I don't think I appreciated when I was in high school because my high school had like four floors. And it's not a mm. lot, but you were going up and down those because there was there was a there was one elevator, but it wasn't for the students to use. It was like a special right. case in case you know someone was visiting a wheelchair or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so the kids were all using the the stairs, and I don't think I appreciated at the time how much stamina that built up. So yeah. you know, when I, when I was going up and down those stairs in high school, I never felt it. I could go up those mm. four floors without even feeling a bit of sweat. It was just it was normal. But a couple of years of not doing that and then going to a building with lots of stairs and then trying to mm-hmm. go up, like, once, like, I would feel it after three floors of stairs, I'd be like, oh, God, my legs are dying. I can't do yeah. this. It's it, it, it's horrible. So at one point in this movie, when it's like, hey, I need two firefighters to go up 30 floors to get to this door that's blocked, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I feel for them. Like, it doesn't oh, matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter how fit they are. It doesn't matter how much of an athlete you are. 30, 40 floors you're going to feel that. Oh, yeah. I mean, just throw in my own little story there. Uh, Like I said, I used to work on like a forklift. I was doing manual labor every day, eight hours a day. I was got a good stamina built up. And then I switched over to working from home. And like within like three months, not even things like walking up the stairs to my apartment. I'm like, did these get taller? <laughs> I don't... What's going on here? No, it's true. You build up a stamina. No, admittedly, I was also a teenager, so it's also maybe an age mm-hmm. thing as well. But you do build up a stamina for doing things like that. And I just remember when I was out of practice doing that, that do, even just in a couple of flights, all of a sudden, yep. oh no, oh no, like I'm feeling this. 
and mm. i think uh so i was i was feeling the vibes of that watching this movie is like oh yeah because they they cut away from these guys for like 30 40 minutes and finally when they come back they're on like floor 110 or something and they're like <laughs> all right here we go let's keep yeah. going and the reason why they're going up is because they want to get out the, the stairs so the people who can go downstairs can go but mm. they try the main stairwell and the smoke coming from there okay we can't go down there it's too dangerous and they go mm. to the second one the backup stairwell and it's just completely blocked shut and like shit can you send up some firefighters to break down this door and yep. it's like, yeah, okay, so they're on their way. And while this is all happening, we get all this stuff with Paul Newman and the kids and, and Lisa climbing up and down stairs and stuff. And they actually get to the other side of this door before the firefighters do, because they're much closer, right? They were already on yeah. whatever floor. And they get to this door, and we see why it's blocked. And it's because some workers, some some people who are working on the building, have spilled cement that is completely... Solidified and hardened on the bottom half of the door. It's literally cement shut. Once again, <laughs> they keep saying that this building is up to code. <laughs> yeah, this doesn't feel very up to code. Like, I can't imagine at no point they were like, all right, check stairwell one, click, all right, looks good, check stairwell two, eh, it's probably fine. Don't gotta open the door at the very least. Yeah, I would imagine checking all the fire safety routes would be mm-hmm. something a building has to have done by a, a third party. Like the, yeah, the fire marshal. Yeah, before they can open. And maybe it's technically not open yet, but the fact that you're having a party would maybe suggest that it has to well, be at that standard already. That was one line. It was. It's pretty much just like a throwaway line, but it felt like one where they were trying to throw a moral into the movie, mm. is a bunch of people are exiting out the building, and there's one woman who I guess was living there residentially, and she was... She just keeps on repeating, we were supposed to have fire drills. They kept saying there'd be fire drills, but we mm. never had any. And, like, I get it from the point of, oh, yeah, these buildings, like, even the residential ones don't typically have fire drills very often. It's very inconvenient to do that, so they don't do it very often. But at the same time, this was the opening ceremony. I don't understand why they would expect to have fire drills already. Yeah, plus there's also a line early on from the the other architect guy who works with Paul Newman mm. who says, yeah, we've not had a chance to check that you know this, this, and this. We're solving all these problems daily. This party should have been pushed back at least a month for us yeah. to like you know check all these things. And of course, again, it's that hubris and the, the mayor of Jaws attitude <laughs> trying, yep. to, trying to know. We have to go ahead with this. We have to have the, the ceremony, the grandeur. We've got all these important people coming to... To celebrate this this fantastic mm-hmm. feat, feat of a building that's been built. How else can we possibly get both the senator and the mayor at the same time? And possibly kill them both off together. Yep. Uh, which, you know. Uh, so, all, all of this is a good... And this is where the movie... Because at this point in the movie, you're about 90 minutes, 100 minutes in. By the time the firemen mm-hmm. get up there and they use C4, or... I don't think it's a C4, but it's plastic explosive. No, it's C4. It's C4, yeah. C4, yeah. Uh, to blow the cement door... And that gets them back into the party. So now they've got two firefighters there to help, which does feel like a logistical great thing to have, is that there's two trained men with this group mm-hmm. now. Um, and that's what something, when they do have the the big set piece with the, the scenic elevator, is that Paul Newman's able to wire it so that it can go down once. And it's like, it can come mm-hmm. back up, the power's still out, but it can go down once. Um, so we can send down one batch of 12 people um, although I think this is after they've tried to have a helicopter yes. land on the, yes. the, the roof to take out a batch of people. 
And it's windy, so the helicopter ends up crashing and blowing up. This, yeah, that was the point that I think, okay, you may have gone a bit too big too quick there because <laughs> they get these people up onto the roof and it's, it, at this point, they've already determined like, okay, whatever escape route we're going to take here, it's going to be small groups of people. So everyone's drawing numbers that basically says, here's the order that you will be evacuated yeah. in. So they send up the first group, they helicopter tries to land, but it's so windy that it just immediately crashes and explodes on the roof here. Not like in a way where it's like, oh, you know, it hit the ground and then there's a gas leak and then it catches. Like, no, it touches a pole and just ignites in a fireball. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Was this helicopter like carrying barrels of kerosene or something? The, uh, what, yeah. what, what, what's the What's the give here? It's like, oh, yeah, you know, we had the shoppers fly in, but they were on their way to the National Fireworks Convention, so we just had to <laughs> divert them over this way. Yeah, so then it's like, okay, we can get one batch down in the elevator whilst they're trying to come up with another plan to get other people out, which we'll get to in a second. But they mm-hmm. they have Faye away, Lisa, the kids, uh, and the, the wife of the mayor, who has... Did they, like, this was the one pair of characters that I thought... Because there's like one scene where the, the wife of the mayor is getting upset because she's trying to get in touch with her daughter to, just in case they don't mm-hmm. make it. And I was like, okay, why are we introducing these two now? And I, I think it is because we want to have someone else we care about on this elevator. But I'm like, yeah. we already have the kids. We already have Lisa and Faye Dunaway. There's, there's plenty well, of people here. Honestly, the biggest problem that I had with this elevator, once you see who's in it, is it is nothing but women and children. Yeah. That like, was- there is not a single man on here. I'm like, well, I wonder if this one's going to survive or not with the kids on board. Well, you say that cynically, but one of them does die. Tragically. Like- no, no. Yes. But I, I, going into that, I knew that the elevator as a whole would be safe because the kids are on board. There's no way the kids are going to die here. I don't think that's a critique, though. I think that's that's I think that's the all point right. of this, though, is that this is maybe, like, you're putting all the vulnerable, because that makes sense. They're putting the women and children here. Although, well, there is one man. You said there's none. But they the, the put a firefighter on board because... And he's the only one who manages to work himself into a position of danger. Well, yeah, but again, that's not a critique. That's the point. Is he's... No, no, I'm not saying it's a critique, <laughs> but I'm just saying that as soon as the sequence started and I saw, like, that this is full of just women and children, that nine, at least 95% of those of the unnamed characters are going to be fine because I can't see a situation where the kids are going to be allowed this gruesome death of the... Escape okay, elevator no, going. You're, you're right, but like that, the point is, is you're, you're putting the vulnerable people in jeopardy. It's meant to create tension and, and, and drama. Oh, yeah, no. But like, that's the thing. Is I didn't feel... I felt tension for the people that were... At, because, I mean, as we'll get to, the fire guys, they have to get outside of the elevator in order to make this happen. I felt tension for them because they were put in a situation where it feels like they could fall or be dropped or something like that. But for the people inside, I didn't ever feel like there was any real tension for them. It felt like they were pretty safe the whole way through. But yeah, but I, I, I don't think that's on... I, I, that, that, the whole point of that, though, is that mm. this is a good... like The fact that this elevator is full of women and children and that they are the most innocent people here that you mm. need to save, that is justification for why... the Because so... Paul Newman says, I want a trained person on that elevator in case something goes wrong. So he says, one of the two firemen who are up here, you go on there, and that's why he's there. And then obviously Paul Newman ends up having to come in, because when the elevator goes halfway down, one of the floors explodes, and it it puts the elevator dangling by one cable, basically, on the outside. 
So the whole big safety thing to try and save them is Paul Newman, or sorry, Steve McQueen, sorry, the fire chief, comes in on a helicopter to try and hook it to the, the helicopter so the helicopter can lower the, the elevator car safely to the ground. And that's ultimately mm. what happens. And the yeah. firefighter who's on the elevator has to like climb outside it and hook the thing on. And it's a whole big set piece. Yeah. This thing being full of people who you, like, oh, they're going to let them die. The whole purpose of that is that, yeah, it justifies why they're taking these risks. So, well, you might cynically say, oh, they're not going to kill the kids. Yeah, that's true. They probably won't. But it does put the guy who's climbing up in danger. It puts Steve McQueen in danger. And yeah. I do think it's fair to say they don't pull punches here because Lisa, who I was pretty convinced, if she either she wasn't going to die or if she did die, yeah. it was going to be more of a dramatic death where she gets final words or something like that because she felt like such a prominent character. No, when this explosion happens and the glass of the elevator smashes, she falls out to her death. She just falls and mm-hmm. dies instantly. And she was a prominent character. She said, I'll see you later, Fred Astaire, when she's going to the elevator. Like, I'll meet you in the lobby, my love, now that we've fallen yep. in love very quickly. Hey, they're both old. They're time short. They have to rush these things. I like. I get it. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think rule number one for the disaster movies is a: never say you're gonna see somebody later, and b: don't be over sixty. That's that is fair. So yeah, you know, I just I I don't look at that elevator being full of these vulnerable characters in a cynical way. Because to me, the whole point of this is that this is a problem for the people for the characters who are there to solve problems. This is going to give them a big problem to have to solve. Okay. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I, yeah. I, for me, it was more so an idea of, like, I, I think the sequence worked in tension because of the fire chief and the one firefighter who, like, fell off. I think the tension there works beautifully. I was, mm. you know, scared for them. But if you try to apply those tension to, like, the kids and stuff like that, it doesn't work as much because they're fully roped up. And just through meta-analysis of movies, it's very hard to let young children die in a gruesome way like that. Yeah, so, but I, yeah, I, but I, I do think it works in the purpose that it's, it's there for. Yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. instead of looking at it as, oh, they're definitely safe, as soon as I saw who was on this elevator, I'm like, okay, well, something bad's definitely going to happen to this elevator. There's no oh, way yeah. all these characters are just going to safely ride to the bottom and that's it, they're safe. Mm-hmm. No, no, there's going to be a big spectacle thing where this elevator is going to be in danger. Oh, yeah, And you, that builds the anticipation. And the fact that they're putting all the vulnerable characters and you're, you're putting in the love interest to the main character, you're putting in people who are tied to other characters, it gives all this extra level of, oh, there's actual stakes in who's on this elevator and that's mm-hmm. why it's a big deal that it has to be saved and all the rest of it. So I think yeah. all that works. The, the plan B here as well is that they're shooting a rope from a helicopter into the into the floor and they're going to the building that's across from them that's still quite tall, obviously, but not as tall. And they're mm-hmm. building effectively a gondola <laughs> that's going yeah. to take people one at a time in this uh, chair that's hooked up to this rope. So this takes quite a bit of time because there's, there's a lot of like throwing the rope in, tying it around uh, things, yeah. you know. I, I absolutely love the very first woman who has to go across we, we have Paul Newman basically saying, all right, who's the next number? And this woman goes, I am. And he says, get on. And she says, no. <laughs> yeah. She's like, yeah, I was next. And then she realizes how she's going to be saved. And she's like, you know what? In second thoughts, that's scary as shit. I yeah. don't want to do that. Not going to do that. Next up. Go ahead. Yeah. And they get like a few people out this way. I think it's implied that this is going on in the background whilst they're mm-hmm. you know, waiting for it other also feels like it's a good like 10 minutes to reset everything yeah, each time. Yeah. It's taken a long time. And eventually, you know, after the whole helicopter thing and they've landed the, the elevator safely and Paul Newman's 
shaking the hands of the firefighter who was like risking his life to hook it all up mm-hmm. he's just sitting down and like he's, he's ready to have he's done like he's, he's it's been a long night and then like the, the the chief of the whole fire department's like hey we need you for something he's like okay what is it what's what's going on okay we estimate like 20 minutes until that floor is just going to like everyone's going to die so mm-hmm. we've got one last ditch effort to save them there's these big water tanks on the top floor of the the building we figure if we blow them there's about a thousand gallons of water uh i may have even they may have even said a million which sounded too much yeah no it's like a massive massive amount of water I, like i get that there would be big tanks of water for various reasons probably the sprinkler system that's not working uh <laughs> But I, I, I do question how much space a million gallons of water takes up. That sounds like a lot. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I do know they had an actual amount here of, like, how much water was actually used in the stunt, because oh, it, sure. was a, it was 7,000 gallons were actually used in the stunt. That's a lot less than a million. Yes, it is. Keep in mind, 999,000 is what you're getting to right before a million. Just to put 7,000 in perspective. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm looking up the volume of a million gallons here. One million gallons is... Well, yeah, million feet. That doesn't help me. <laughs> Give me something easier to work with here. All right, pr- here we go. I'm pretty sure like a, a whole public swimming pool does not have a million gallons in it. Yeah, I guess that's a better thing. Olympic swimming pool. How much is that? <laughs> Swimming pool in gallons. Uh, All right, so an Olympic swimming pool in gallons is 500,000. So they would need two Olympic swimming pools to have a million gallons. You know, you know and they had it over. they had it over like six tanks, I think, as well. I could see that. I'll admit, I didn't think the Olympic swimming pool would be hitting 500,000. That was a higher number than I think I was expecting from you to say. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's reasonable to say a million gallons, even if they were rounding up a little bit. Okay. Okay, I'll accept it. I'll, it sounded like a lot, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, a million of anything sounds like a lot. But they're like, hey, this is a last-ditch effort. Where we theorize that this could actually drown out the fire, uh, but, you know, we're going to have to fly the one qualified person to go, and unfortunately for you, <laughs> you're the, the qualified person. I, I love how they specifically say, like, there are two qualified people. The first one's in the medical infirmary. Guess who's going? <laughs> so he suits up in this, like, you know, special flame suit that's all silver uh, with the mask and all that, and he goes up and he's like, hey, Paul Newman, I'm coming up, and you, you know where all the tanks are and shit. You need to help me. So our two lead characters sort of, you know, come back together again at the end to mm-hmm. go around and, and plant all these explosives. Everyone at the party's, like, tying themselves down. Although, not before, of course, the shitty son-in-law decides to yeah. run for the gondola. He actually tried to get on it for, before, and the, the father-in-law slaps him down and says, yeah. you little shit, you're not going until you're last. He goes and he talks to a bunch of other, like, rich guys at the party, and he's, like, asking what their numbers is. And then whatever conversation happens, then he comes up to his father-in-law and says, like, we're not going to wait. The numbers are meaningless now. What do you say to that, dad? And then his dad just punches him in the stomach and says, you're going last. You all get back in line. <laughs> yeah, that's cathartic. I actually felt bad for uh, Robert Vaughn's character, the, the senator, because mm-hmm. when the, the shitty son-in-law runs to the gondola and he's like on it, Robert mm-hmm. Vaughn jumps on it to get him off. He's saying, get out, get out. And he actually falls to his death. And he wasn't trying to leave. Because like, some of the others who were jumping for it, I think were trying to also get yeah, out. Yeah, they were trying to get on as well. Yeah. 
but he was just trying to get him off uh and instead he falls to his death and i was like damn that's yep. shit he 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 did literally nothing bad this whole movie he was being sensible for the most part mm-hmm. he was trying to think of solutions to problems and yep. now he's now he's dead that's a shame well he took part in some bribery at the beginning because he had a very expensive bottle of wine so oh he did that's right yeah he's he was doomed from that i moment mean on. that's pretty low and like in terms of the guilt of this movie Oh yeah, that's right. The the son-in-law having kickbacks to use cheaper electrical parts—that's the. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he deserved what he had coming. Oh yeah, I mean, again, the moment he walked in and they were like, "Hey, did you replace the electrical stuff?" He's like, "I don't have to answer to you." That <laughs> moment was, it's like, okay, so you're dead now. There's no way you're making it yes. out of this. But you're going to be thoroughly unlikable until that moment, though. Yep. So it's not even a point where he's like thoroughly unlikable just for the audience. Like nobody around him likes him either. Yeah. There's nobody there, going to bat for him. There's one point actually where the wife, who doesn't have a lot to do in this movie, but there's one scene where she comes up to him and she basically says, hey, I, I thought you might need me because I, I, I can't, like, it, it's not even like she blames him and wants to, like, give him shit for what he's done. She's, she's, mm-hmm. she, she's actually very understanding and says, I care about you. And I think, you know, the guilt, if you had any part in this, I, the guilt you must be feeling right now is so much. I want to help with that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. woman, you're a saint. You, like, yeah. you, you are trying to stick by him and help him through the guilt he might feel because he might have been responsible for starting this. You don't, you don't, you're not blaming him. You're not holding mm-hmm. him against him. You're trying to help him through it. And he, of course, pushes her away and says, I just need booze and, you know, piss off and he's already tried to cheat her on her by this point so yeah. you know it's like okay you know what you've went above and beyond you've tried to help him ditch this prick because he mm-hmm. is awful uh but even then at the end of the movie i mean she's crying in general because of everything that's happened but it seems like she's also crying specifically because her husband died she's crying now but this. she's better in the long run oh yeah she's coming no out she's coming out of this with a better life because that guy's gone i'm just mm-hmm. no question in my mind Oh, and he only had like a three dollar life insurance policy because he's a <laughs> prick like that too. So yeah, they they blow up the tanks. Uh, they they run back down. There's a little set piece on the way down where there's a door with uh, like fire behind it and they can't get down. So uh, Paul Newman suits up in his silver suit and holds the door uh, for Paul Newman to get past. So they they both get get through uh, and then he strips off the silver sort of flame retardant suit because it's like well it's mm. now it's burning up so I need to get I'm this. not about to be in the last act wearing this thing yeah so uh, we get this big set piece a couple of a couple of the people do die um during yeah, the, the water the, flooding well that's the one thing that I was kind of confused because the water flooding sure whatever but when they set off the explosives there's a few people who are just like screw this I'm not going to stay tied down and like let these explosives go off so they untie themselves and just start running somewhere and it seems like they all end up dying because of that yeah because they don't trust the advice because they're told to tie down because when this all you know the water starts flowing like it's Mm -hmm. dangerous and sure enough a couple of people do die in this carnage and they and and they do know that's a risk they say yeah like these explosions going off and the water coming down is going to have some casualties but it'll save most of them so Mm -hmm. it's the best choice they have at this point and sure enough we get a lot of shots of this water flooding everywhere of uh, putting out some of the fires and stuff and it's quite extended it's not it's not like a quick couple of shots like they really show for a good two minutes just water flooding down all of these locations and the actors being sprayed with water and uh you know so and you eventually get a wide shot where it does look like the fires are going out and it's like oh hey this has saved mm-hmm. the day so yeah it's, it has a bit of a magic cure-all at the end 
Yeah, especially like I could understand it if it was just, oh, you know, it dampened like four or five floors up to the top. Yeah. And therefore it's not at risk of being destroyed. But like it looks like it puts out the fire 60 floors down beneath it. Yeah, which it does feel like a little bit of a magic. Like, okay, we just want to end the movie now with a big set piece and this is going to save everyone. Yeah. Whereas realistically, it would feel more like, okay, this has bought them a couple of hours now to get out a different way or maybe, but you know, whatever. At this point, we're two hours and 40 minutes in. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. So. Oh, yeah. There's no reason to keep it going after this point. Yeah. So we get, we get the, you know, everyone on the ground. We get OJ Simpson shows up. He saved Lisa's cat. That was his last scene, was him picking up <laughs> the cat. Can I just, can I just, this sequence. So we have the old man who is like in love with Lisa. At yeah, this Fred point. Astaire. He comes down. Yep. Yeah, Fred Astaire. He comes down. He's like, Lisa, where are you, my darling? I said I'd meet up with you. And the fireman who is actually on the scenic elevator uh is talked to by him he's like have you seen lisa and he's like i'm sorry she's she's dead and he starts freaking out a little bit he's like lisa lisa no and then oj shows up and just for, I, I just i just couldn't get out of this man's perspective where this man who i have never met before in my life comes up and presents me a cat <laughs> and then walks away now to be fair to be fair Yes. He did see it was Lisa's cat because when he, got, he went to pick her up earlier at her door, mm-hmm. he saw the yes. cat. He saw her did say he? goodbye okay. to the cat. I missed that part. All right. Fair yeah. enough. So he knows it's her cat. Uh, so now he's stuck with a cat, which is, cats are great. So he should think himself lucky. Yep. He got some pussy out of this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was, like, I was a crude joke. Okay. I'm sorry. But. They gave me it, okay? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a given. You gotta take they, it. They gave me it on a silver platter. I had to take the, 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 the low-hanging fruit. But, yeah, that, that so I was like, oh, OJ's alive then. Okay. Uh, yeah. Because uh, that's the point he, sh- that's the first point he shows up in like an hour and a half of yeah. this movie. I, I was I was basically shocked. I mean, it confirmed that I didn't miss his death. I, I was thinking I'd missed a scene somewhere. And no, no, there he is. He was, he was just holding yep. a cat for the last 90 minutes because it was he had to take the stairs down yes. and it took him an hour and a half to take the stairs <laughs> so there's that and then we end on the, the quiet moment where McQueen is like hey you should ask us how to build them if you're going to keep building them like this and he's like alright I'm asking and then they smell at each other they hold hands as the movie fades to black <laughs> okay I might be embellishing a little <laughs> I was gonna say Paul Newman's holding hands and cuddled up with his girlfriend slash wife as yes. Steve McQueen drives away. Yes. But it's implying that they're going to work together now when he's he's mm-hmm. designing more buildings and yep. here endeth the movie. And you know, it, it it does feel like sometimes length doesn't just make a movie feel epic, but it does like when you get to an end of a two hour forty minute movie that's been all disasters and averting problems and people dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's so many little scenes that we've obviously glossed over, like at one point, Steve McQueen and some of the other firemen have to, like, rope down the elevator shaft, but when they mm-hmm. open the elevator door, like, a flaming fireman body just, like, falls down, and it's like, oh, shit, yeah. that's one of ours. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, like I said at the beginning, there's enough in this movie to keep the pace going, it's enough that it doesn't feel like it ever just comes to a full stop, but I do think the biggest problem comes from the point where everyone kind of coalesces up in the party room yeah because from that point forward it's not really any fire anymore like the idea of the fire is still building up and they know that it's going to eventually reach them 
but you go a good solid hour without seeing any major fire effects for up until the very end, obviously. Yeah, at that point, it's more about how do we get them out of the, the building and mm -hmm. we get those. And some of those set, like the gondola set piece is, is fun. The yeah. uh, Obviously, the scenic elevator is, the, I'd say, probably the biggest set piece at that point is really good. Mm. So they, they would do some fun sequences out of it. But I think, like a lot of disaster movies, though, like, I think there's a couple of character arcs here. The hubris of, of this building even existing and cutting corners, like, those are nice messages and they're there. But I wouldn't say it's like a great drama with like great character arcs and stories. Like there's too many characters. No. This is a movie about spectacle. It's about surviving. It's about seeing these big actors show up and be a part of this ensemble. But it's not some great drama. And it was never supposed no. to be, and that's okay. But there is definitely a ceiling on for like what you're saying as a as a as a as a film, as a piece of art. It's mm -hmm. it's more of a blockbuster, it's more of a fun adventure movie. And as that, I think it is quite, you know, sufficient at being that. Um, yeah. You know, I think when you think of 70s disaster movies, I think this and Poseidon Adventure are the first two you think of. And we knew that we'd be doing this at least in two seasons. So we, we put one in the first season and we mm -hmm. saved this for the second season. And I think that was a the right choice. I think saving another biggie for this one made sense. And I think it is one of the most well-known ones because it is one of the biggest. It's one of the longest it's got a lot of big ideas and its effects because it is this, you know, huge tower and they've got this big cast. It's, it's kind of the the zenith of the 70s disaster movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I like I said, just thinking back to other things that were in the, like, Poseidon Adventure, things that were in, like, Cassandra Crossing, there is a lot of carryover. And obviously some came before, some came after, but this one felt like it had... A little bit of everything and obviously the most easily comparison to one that we already covered was city on fire which i think this one handled the idea a lot better oh, i think sure. city on fire was one we were definitely a lot weaker on in terms of fire yeah say um, say on fire had a great like 10 minute sequence where the fire explosions were all like happening and then the rest mm -hmm. of the movie just didn't know how to really do anything yeah i was gonna, the one thing i remember from that sequence is that they like set an entire city block on fire but then they just did nothing with it for so long this movie had two hours and 45 minutes and i never felt like they didn't have something to do yeah they were it always, always felt like they had an idea yeah they always had problems to solve they always had something for characters almost like it was a bunch of many little stories where it's okay here's the problem here's how we try and solve it and it all mm -hmm. fed into the larger disaster and I think as a, as a thrilling adventure movie, it, it functions very well. And mm -hmm. I think people remember it as being one of the better examples of this. I think if you want to critique it and say it's too long, or you want to critique it and say whatever, but I think its characters are pretty well defined, particularly the mm -hmm. main two, and the way they clash, and that the one is like there to be the moral sort of side saying, hey, you shouldn't put these buildings this tall without the proper ideas in place to protect them. And the yeah. architect who's sort of going to sympathize with that and learn his lesson by the end. Like, that's more than what a lot of disaster movies get. And it's something, you know, we said last season where Poseidon Adventure had a couple of decent character stories. And then all the movies that we had after that, with the exception of Cassandra Crossing, which was genuinely a very surprisingly mm -hmm. deep film for what it was, uh, yeah. they were definitely a lot thinner on that. And I think we're probably going to see it again this time where this is probably going to be the highest quality for the most part and then i think a lot of the movies we're doing this season barring one are all after this and i feel like we're going to be like oh this was all the cash-in movies to this 
this wave yeah. of disaster movies and we're probably going to see a lot of weaker examples and that'll be fun to go through but i think this is probably going to be the the peak not just because the building's tall <laughs> for the record but this will be the peak of quality for this season mm-hmm. i expect but then again we may get a surprise like cassandra crossing again i don't know yeah, I mean, that's the thing when I listed at the beginning that this movie got a lot of Oscar noms. Clearly, this movie is a standout in terms of the disaster genre like that, especially for the time. It's something that even the Academy took seriously. But it is one of those things that once something gets that much notoriety in a genre that didn't have it before, you're going to get a lot of cash-ins. You're yeah. going to get a lot of stuff that's trying to be like, oh, we can, we can get awards just for... Put it on a roller coaster. Do it. Would you believe it? So. We've got a movie called Roller Coaster planned for later this season. Look forward to that. I know. There you go. How, so yeah, that's how fun is that? I, I think I think you're right that this is going to be the peak in terms of how good it is. But yeah, I'm holding out that there might be a little gem hidden out later. Oh, on. actually, to be fair, so. now that I'm thinking back to season one. We did finish that season with China Syndrome, which was also very good, but. That stuck mm-hmm. out as being different, like an evolution rather than like just another right. disaster movie. Uh, yeah. Whereas this season, I feel like you know we're going to be doing a lot of like, here's a redo of this idea, here's a redo of that idea. But it'll be funny to see mm-hmm. what they all do with it and how they do it on smaller budgets. Because I have to imagine this is one of the bigger budgeted ones out of all the oh, yeah. batch. I can't imagine, especially even though not for the effects, just for the cast. Absolutely. Being able to get these yeah. people in. Most of them do have at least one star in them, and we'll see how that sort of shapes up as we go, but... Strangely enough, five of them are O.J. Simpson. I don't know how they managed <laughs> So, yeah, I think we'll rate uh, Tower and Inferno. What are you giving it? Um, I mean, I definitely would put this over the threshold of good, so at least a seven. The question is, do I go higher than that? Uh... I don't think so. I think that this movie, uh, it does have a lot going for it, but I do think that the length is a major factor here. This could, and obviously the cast as well, it's just a bit too many players stretched over a bit too long a time. And while I do think it did a great job of keeping my interest, like I said, there's a, there's a whole hour of this movie that I probably would say either refocus it, trim it a different way, or just cut it entirely, because I think that it could have work to having the finale a little bit earlier and by a little bit i mean like a third of the movie <laughs> earlier than it actually was so i'd say a seven it's pretty fair yeah i'm kind of bouncing around there i think i might even go a little nudge and say 7.5 i think I, I i just i think there's enough problems in terms of it being so long that i can't say it's a great movie and go up to the eight mm. but i do enjoy it i do enjoy the spectacle i enjoy that as a big cast i enjoy that we're put we put all the pieces to you know on the board early on with all the different characters mm-hmm. we set up the problems that might arise i i think i like the vibe of the movie enough uh yeah that i i'm, I'm willing to go up to the 7.5 uh but you know obviously it, it does come with the 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 disaster movie faults and if you mm-hmm. aren't prone to liking disaster movies i would say yeah you're probably not going to enjoy this it's not going to sway you whereas i think something like china syndrome or cassandra crossing have actually some other things that creep into them that are mm-hmm. genuinely put them above and beyond. And those ended up being maybe my favorites of the 70s disaster movies, and that may still be true by the time we finish this season based on yeah. the type of movies we're doing for the rest of this. So we'll see. But, uh, yeah. So in terms of making the cut, I don't think it's much of an argument. Makes the cut? I think it makes the cut, yeah. I think it doesn't go above and beyond that. Isn't below that. It makes the cut. So 
right. Uh, next I'll time do. on the show, uh, our second episode of 70s Disaster Season 2, is we're going back to a boat. So, you know, Season 1, we did Poseidon Adventure. Next oh, week, boy. we do Juggernaut. I'll be honest, this is based off the titling. I don't want to spoil anything, but the titles for all the rest of them are pretty straightforward. Juggernaut's the only one that I didn't know it was actually on a boat. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. So this is Richard Harris, who, if I remember correctly, wasn't he in Cassandra Crossing? That's one of the actors from that. Well, yeah, I think so. Yeah. He definitely was. I just, I actually just looked up uh, Jared Harris last night for something totally unrelated, and I was like, oh, hey, that's his dad. <laughs> Uh, next week we also have Anthony Hopkins, Ian Holm. So we got uh, some some names uh, yeah. that we're going to recognize. So uh, very cool. Uh, so we'll see how Juggernaut pans out next week. You can of course support all the content over at Patreon.com/MailFuzzTV. Uh, we do two bonus shows every month, uh, me and David, that you can get on Patreon or via YouTube memberships, and that is. Uh, collector's cut or sorry criterion cut i might say mm-hmm. uh, which is where we do once a month we do a movie from the criterion collection uh this month's episode i believe is diabolique which is actually one of my favorite movies of all time so if you want to go over and yeah. hear us discuss that then that's over on patreon uh, and then the other show we do once a month is extra reels which is where we do the worst movies of all time and this month we are doing <laughs> a film by the master that is neil breen which is a fever dream of a discussion if you ever see one of those. So mm, yep. if you want to go check out those, there's also bonuses for other shows that we do on Mail Fuzz movies that I do. You know, I do the Screams After Midnight Horror Movie Podcast with Tim. Go check out that if you're interested. And of course, me and David uh, are doing the Science Fiction Movie Podcast as well, the Atomic Cinema Experiment. Uh, David joined that show just last month, so that's rolling as well. So if you want more you know, movie discussions with me and David, uh, we're doing that over there. So go and check out that. Uh, so like I say, Atomic Cinema Experiment's not a Patreon show, though. That's just a regular show on Mail Fuzz Movies, or you can get the yep. podcast feed as well. So go check out that uh, if you want more. But that is the show. So thank you very much for joining us. We always appreciate it. Keep watching movies. And if you can get it, it's always nice to have Diplomatic Immunity! Diplomatic Immunity!